This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, I'm Boston area broadcaster and podcaster Jordan Rich. Such an honor and a joy to sit with Bill Powers and discuss issues of policing and community, and also to welcome Bill's wonderful guests. Today, retired Spokane, Washington police officer Frank Scalise, who writes under the pen name Frank Zafiro, publishing exciting, readable, and authentic novels about policing. He recently co-authored a book we'll be talking about called The Ride Along. Let me now turn things over to Bill Powers to further introduce our guest. So when we first started our podcast, we weren't quite sure of the opening chapter, where we were going to go with it, how we were going to get people's attention. And we came around to deciding on a focus on the current status of policing in America. And we've done nine episodes so far with a lot of subject matter experts who really brought us up to speed from their their points of view um, and uh, about community re-engagement post uh, George Floyd uh, and the, re- the rebuilding of trust and, and police legitimacy face-to-face meetings, et cetera. Uh, and so you you have graciously agreed to come on in what I consider to be the exclamation point or exclamation mark on the end of our first chapter because the book that you have written, which is titled um, The Ride Along, struck me as the most uh, spot-on uh, and profound uh, book that I have read about the, about the subject, far, far and away. With your approval, we'll, we'll get going with some, some questions about the ride-along. And, uh, but more importantly, uh, we want the people to know a little bit about you and your background, both as a writer, as importantly, your, your history as a police officer, uh, and how your background in policing has uh, helped you in your writing or guided you in your writing, as the case may be. Well, first off, thank you for your kind words uh, about the ride-along. Um, it, it was a, definitely a project that I put a lot of thought and a lot of myself into. And, you know, when you write crime fiction, you're writing mostly for people to enjoy a good story, you know, maybe figure out a mystery or, or have some fun with an action thriller or, or something along those lines. Uh, you don't think about books in terms of being important. And, and the write along is a bit of an exception there for me. I felt like it was one of the more important books that I've written. Uh, but I should be clear, I did not write it alone. Uh, I have a co-author uh, uh, for the, uh, the Write Along, uh, which is part of the Charlie 316 series uh, that I write with Colin Conway. And he he brought a lot to to this project as well. Um, so uh, you know, I want to give uh, all due credit there. It was a, a, coll- a complete collaboration. It wasn't uh, uh, un- uneven at all. It was 50-50. Uh, but to answer your question on background, uh, you know, I, I was a police officer for 20 years in uh, Spokane, Washington. Not a huge town, not like Boston, um, but, uh, you know, 225,000 uh, people there, you know, and, and had all the issues of a bigger city and and a little bit of the charm of a smaller town at times. Uh, I had a career that I, I feel very fortunate, uh, fortunate to have had in that I spent the first half doing the job as a patrol officer, as a training officer, as a detective, and and these sorts of things. And then I, I sort of fell backwards into uh, my first promotion to a leadership role when I became a sergeant. And that made me really shift gears and start asking questions about what leadership was and and how it should be uh, implemented and what it was there for and, and how to be good at it. And so that was the second half of my career was in, in leadership roles. And in that 
capacity. You know, when you're not out on patrol with the call you're on right in front of you, uh, you get the luxury of, you know, lifting your head up and looking around a little bit and getting a little more time to think about what's happening. And so you start, start to see things a little bit differently. And, and that was a real benefit of, of, of that leadership time. And, and it, it changed from Sergeant to Lieutenant to Captain. I mean, the, the, the points of emphasis, as you well know, are different, um, the scope and, and what you're responsible for. Uh, but I got the opportunity to also to be in command of a lot of different units that I never would have been part of if, if I had done, a, you know, 20 years in patrol or 20 years as a detective or, or whatever. You know, I, I never would have been on the SWAT team, but I got to command the SWAT team. I never would have been a canine handler, but I got to command the canine team. And part of commanding those units was learning everything I could about them uh, because, you know, your role is to make sure they have everything they need to do their job and you can't really do that convincingly if you don't know what their job is uh, so that was essentially my my police career after i left i i did have the good fortune to uh, teach your leadership course for the acp called leading uh, leadership and police organizations and that journey took me all over the us and canada to all these different law enforcement organizations and that opened my eyes in a lot of ways too and it was an experience that you know i i didn't know i needed you know i mean when you're in one organization your entire life you know you get that sort of hometown blindness you know our swat team's the best swat team in the country our canine handlers are the best canine handlers in the country we we our policy is the smartest policy and you just kind of naturally think that because it's all you know and then you go around to different places and you're like wow our SWAT team is better than this SWAT team but man that policy is a lot better than ours and you know and, and these other sorts of revelations and you see how there are so many commonalities in law enforcement and in the profession but there are also a number of of differences between agencies and so you get to kind of experience those so I did that for four years and um to be honest with you I'd probably still be doing it if it uh uh, given how much I enjoyed it, except for the fact that I got tired of being away from my wife so much. I mean, I was traveling, you know, two, three weeks out of the month and it was just, uh, it was too much time away. So I hung up my PowerPoint clicker next to my badge <laughs> and I was already a writer. I'd been writing since I was a kid. Uh, and th that allowed me to just shift from being, you know, a, a part-time writer to a full-time writer. Uh, so I think I covered everything you asked. No, you you certainly did, and um, right, you do. Um, uh, I've written two books, and I feel really accomplished. And then I look at your resume and the amount of books that you've written. Uh, and uh, while I haven't had a chance to read most of them yet, I, I look forward to it because I I enjoy a police procedural when it's written by someone who was a police officer and and knows the the, the way that, you know that things go. I should add here that uh, I first met Frank uh, this past summer at a convention. Um, or a conference, rather, from the Public Safety Writers Association, uh, uh, which is a gathering of, of folks, most of whom have been practitioners. And I will be very candid and say I went with um, low expectations, but I always have low expectations and, and, and so that they can grow from there. And within, I don't know, half a day of listening to you and several of our peers uh, talking uh, uh, about their professions and, and as police officers but also as writers, um, 
to steal a line from a friend of mine, I felt like a piece of coal in a room full of diamonds. Uh, it really, it, it didn't set me back. It just made me made me very comfortable to be with with, with folks like you. And we, we had an opportunity to, to talk with a bunch. And, and you're the first uh, of our uh, teammates, if you will, that uh, has come on. But I've got hopes and plans to have several other guys on because they also bring something great to the table. And I agree with you. I'm learning more as I go along, both with writing and um and uh, uh, podcasting that I think everything about, you know, my old apartment and my Commonwealth are the best in the country. And then I get to meet people from other parts. And like you said, sometimes I say, boy, are we blessed we've got a great medical examiner's office. Boy, are we blessed we have all the tools that we need because we're, we're uh, you know, uh, people rich and we can, we can do these things. When I look at other things going on in other parts of the country where they don't have what we have. Um, and I realized it's not that they're making mistakes, it's that they don't have the ability and, and the, uh, the experience and, and the resources to be able to get done what needs to get done. So I love it when you write and because it, it presents a, a, whole, a whole great outlook uh, for, for the rest of us. Now, the, the, you, you brought up uh, Colin Conway, and the other part that I find really interesting is Colin's background, uh, like yours, is similar, but the fact that you guys are on the same PD, I don't think in my state four cops have written a book um, in, in this current era. And they are two guys on the same PD that uh, n- not only are writers, but l- learned how to collaborate together and turn out what I consider one hell of a book. Yeah, it is kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, uh, but it's how we met, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was on the job and, and I had just become a sergeant. I was over in the volunteer services unit, which we had a very uh, robust uh volunteer presence at that time well over uh a hundred different volunteers which may not sound like a lot in some quarters but uh, uh you know you, again you're talking about spokane which is a couple hundred thousand people in the city and and uh, we had a hundred folks that gave a, a lot of their time uh every month uh for training and then to serve and, and they did a spectacular job and being in charge of that unit was, uh, you know, was one of one of the particular joys of of my career. Colin was working in an office uh, that was called Special Police Problems, which is such a stupid <laughs> title. And uh, but it was a cool job because he uh, was pretty much a liaison to the business community in every way that you can imagine that meaning, uh, you know, licensing issues and and enforcement issues and so forth. And, and, you know, he was uniquely suited to that because he'd been in business before uh, real estate. And ultimately after his five years on the job, he elected to uh, go back into the business field and he's a very accomplished uh, real estate, commercial real estate broker. Um, But we, you know, we met through a mutual friend that I went through the Academy with uh, who introduced us. And we were like a couple of dorky kids who like baseball, you know, well, hey, Frank, Colin likes baseball. Oh, I like baseball. You like baseball. I like baseball. What do you like about baseball? I like baseball because it's baseball. And you go on this thing, except it was writing instead of baseball. Uh, and we just started, you know, reading each other's stuff and encouraging each other and editing for each other and trying to, uh, you know, break into the to the business. And we ended up writing a book together way back in 2005. It was a uh, uh, an installment in my River City Police Procedural series. And it ended up uh, sitting on a shelf until about 2012 when when we pulled it out and did a massive revision and called out about 30, 40,000 words and and, uh, and and published it. And uh, it's one of my better selling uh, installments of that series. 
Uh, and then like, I don't know, maybe six years later, um, you know, we, we, we stayed friends, um, on and off. We kind of had some time where we were doing our own thing and we weren't in contact a bunch. Uh, and then we kind of swung back around and started collaborating again in terms of helping each other out with editing and, and feedback and stuff. And, and then, uh, one day he calls me up and he says, Hey, I've got this idea for a series, uh, called Charlie 316, but it, you know, I want to get into like what happens after somebody gets in a shooting an officer involved shooting but you know i want to get into things at levels that i never you know lived you know command levels and 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 you know that kind of stuff and i don't want to get over my skis on it so you know i know we can work together we have you do want to write this together and i was like yeah let's do it you know that sounds awesome and it it was a really cool idea and he had the skeletons of a story and we set about hanging some meat on it and what started as one book ended up being a four book arc uh in the charlie 316 series and after that arc finished we kind of decided that we liked that universe but any future books would need to be essentially standalones within that universe and when i came up with the idea for the ride-along um you know i i i knew it had to be someplace sp specific it couldn't be in any town usa it had to be in a place because the issues around policing are national but they're also very local and without any specificity to the locality it would have lost a lot of punch and so i approached him this time and said hey how do you feel about putting this in there and he was like yeah let's do it by that time i had about the first third or half of the draft written and he you know we decided i'd go ahead and finish the first draft and then we'd pick it up with the uh revision process which is not our usual um our usual process not the way we usually do it um but i had spent you know years i, I told you my career path I, i'd spent years especially during the time and after the time i was teaching being really i mean if i can say pissed off i'm going to say pissed off because I, at two different sets of people uh on the one hand i i was really sick and tired of people who you know, know absolutely nothing about the world of policing and the responsibilities and how to apply um, the concept of, of of professional modern policing, who would be critical of the police from a position of ignorance. Now, it's fine to be critical of something. And in fact, we need people to be critical of anything we do. That's how it improves. But do so from a position of at least a bit of knowledge. And there's so much ignorant criticism happening and people that you know a much more malignant version of the why can't you just shoot him in the leg sort of thinking and it really was it was bugging me it was getting me like viscerally upset and my wife even said you need to calm down about this stuff you're retired you know but i was similarly angry at how poor a job we as a profession were doing at communicating <laughs> these things like we could eradicate some of that ignorance if we were more forthcoming more willing to accept criticism and or respond to it in a constructive way and, and we weren't doing ourselves any favors with the way that we went about it and and on that coupled with what i think are a couple of huge strategic errors uh, at the profession wide level uh have really served to sort of 
estrange us from the communities that we're supposed to be serving. And, and then it just was, it was making me very frustrated because the two sides were never communicating. It was all about shouting slogans. It was all about waiting until you're done talking so that I can get my point in, or I'll listen to you just enough to be able to shoot down your point, not to consider it. I, I was literally just becoming so frustrated that it was having a, a, an effect on my you know, quality of life. And so I, I initially was going to write it as a short story. It obviously turned into a book very quickly. Uh, this concept that nobody's going to listen to each other. Okay, I'm going to take two people and I'm going to put them in a car on a graveyard shift where they have to listen to each other or kill each other, one of the two. And and so that was kind of the birth of the idea of the ride along. Um, one of the things that I wanted to be sure to do, however, was it wasn't to be a straw man situation. I wasn't going to put the cop in there so that he could get beat up by the civilian who who is uh, you know in favor of police reform, and I wasn't going to put the civilian in there to you know be convinced by the cop that um, all criticism of police is is wrong and and you know she comes around to see it the right way. You know that would just that would do no good. That essentially, I would be parroting and and miming the exact same thing I was complaining about. You know, I was picking, a, I'd be picking a side and and just yelling about it. And so I was really careful. And and Colin came into play here hugely in making sure that we're as close to fifty fifty in terms of the points that were made and how reasonable they were, and uh, from each perspective. And and that made some people mad, uh, ironically, from both sides of the discussion which told us we maybe did exactly what we were trying to do you absolutely did what you were trying to do because i'm like everybody else when i finished the book it was like damn i but that was quickly followed by this what a perfect ending what a perfect perfect ending to, to the book uh and and then you go into a bit of an epilogue and explain why you came to the finding or the the ending that you did and it, it's perfect i mean if i've ever read anything that i wish i wrote it was this because I've been thinking my thoughts mirror yours completely even though we're on opposite coasts um, and um, you know I forget where I read it years ago but it's the person that's the first one out of the box that will control the, the narrative and police always seem to be back on their heels and I get it I, I, you know because we're we're an entity we are the people the people are us and when our the people that hire us you know the, our, our, uh, our bosses the, the um, city state local officials and they don't want us talking they don't want us addressing things uh right out of the box um then we're behind the narrative and and can really get beat up and i just came back yesterday morning from the annual iacp conference and uh a tremendous amount of it was dedicated to office of wellness but secondary i thought was the whole idea of we need to be more out in front if we're going to talk about dialogue we need to start the dialogue and we got to be the you know the big guys in the room and pull the people together and and have these discussions that need to be had and and take hits where we deserve hits and uh, very similar and you and I discussed this the other day is that idea is once you retire and you're doing other things and you look back and you go damn why don't you do why don't you do this and you get to start to understand a little of the perspective uh, of the other people like you said it's way out of whack and it's way over the top uh, when they start to understand the realities of it and I think we're starting to make that change. But again, the, if I was to, to teach a class in social uh, um, social studies or social uh, sociology, this would be the first book I'd want to have people read because you do show, you and Colin both show, both sides, both sides. 
you know, without without giving things away, but it's the way that you will present uh, an episode or, or, or an incident rather, and then um, from from one side, and then in the next chapter, basically go right back to the same incident through the ride-alongs view of what they saw and what they perceived, and. Yeah, I'd sit there and my jaws would clench, but at the same time, I'd say, I understand. I understand. If, if all they know is what they hear on Name the Network, uh, in, in a, uh, one of the other things that, that bothers me, and I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent, is you, uh, you wish they could meet the people in the media that are presenting this, whether it's in you know, written media or, or otherwise, and where their perspective is right, right out of the gate. So it's not like the old-day journalism where everything's split right down the middle. Somebody is injecting their opinions uh, into their writing. It's, it's some, sometimes it's just by the turning of a phrase or a headline, and uh, it starts right off uh, anti-police. It's infuriating, but I think we're starting to make progress, and I think this book goes a long way to, uh, to showing that. Well, it was important to us to explore nuance because, uh, as, as Colin has, has frequently said, you know, that is what is lacking in the conversation a lot of times today. Absolutely. An appreciation or even a willingness to explore the, nu- the nuance of a situation because it's it's not black or white. It's not, you know, all one way or all the other way. And, uh, you know, I remember as a young officer, I used to get so frustrated when my bosses particularly like lieutenant and above would would say that perception is reality and i just god graded at that and i was like no it isn't reality is reality and you know that's an example of somebody who was younger but also someone who is is consumed by their own perception you know i mean when you're a patrol officer you can't you have to focus on the call you're going on or, or, or the patrol that you're doing because your life and other people's safety depends on it. And you don't have time to entertain other perspectives, other perceptions. Uh, that's, that's not your role. And frankly, it would be dangerous for you to do so a, a good percentage of the time uh, when you're actively engaged in, in patrol. And, you know, it, it's for leadership at different levels to really explore that. Um, but you know, perception is reality. Maybe wasn't the right way to, to say it because I, I bucked under that and maybe that was just me. Uh, but as time went on, I came to realize that, you know, everyone's perception is their reality. And then, and so maybe by being a little more clear, uh, I would have accepted it a little quicker. Uh, but it's all, it is all nuance. I mean, like you said, a turn, how do you phrase something? How do you describe an event? You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, an officer involved in uh, shooting can be described in a, in a myriad of different ways. And you can tell pretty quickly whether it's straight journalism or if it's pro police or anti police, you know, I mean, just think of three different ways you could run that headline of, of, of an officer involved shooting. Um, and the problem is that frequently people have already made up their mind about that shooting before any of the facts are in. And, and, and that's on all sides of the equation. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. cops are automatically going to assume it was, uh, you know, a a shooting that was, you know, necessary and there's nothing wrong with it because why else would you shoot someone? There are people in the public who would immediately say that was flat out murder, you know, from the get, they don't want any of the details of it either. Uh, that's what's been lost, I think, in our national discourse is is exploring the nuance of a situation, whether it's a single event or as what you've been tackling in in your podcast here, you know, more of an institutional and cultural monolith that we have to almost break down in order to rebuild in a more functional way. 
and we are going through that. Uh, I'll give you one example here in Massachusetts. We had a uh, officer-involved shooting, resulting in the death. It it becomes a criminal investigation. They they all are because it, it is a homicide, and the question is whether it was justifiable or not. And in this case, it was. But the public narrative took off without naming the city or anything else. It was it was a minority uh, from a foreign country uh, who who died, uh, who was in the midst of a uh, psychotic episode, went on the attack, and 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 unfortunately was was shot and killed. But because it's what it was and it had to go through an inquest through the courts, it ties it all up. So being able to talk about particulars when you're tied up in a, in a criminal investigation is not, is not popular. Uh, excuse me, it's not allowed. And so the question was how to go about it. And uh, the, the person who was in charge, the PEIO of this department, took a bit, but they started to try to rebuild their connections with the community, uh, uh, not talking about that case, but being positive about everything. Plus everything about the department and the willingness to work in all. And, and ultimately, the decision just came out two weeks ago in the inquest from the judge that the shooting was a good shooting. And the papers reported it in about two paragraphs and it went away. You know, they, but all along, they had been boosting it the other way that, you know, why can't we have the cop's name? Why can't we have this? Why can't we have that? Because you can't. Because you can't. But, but explained well and done well, then generally people have an understanding. Not everybody, but you can't please everybody. Yeah, I hate that term "good shoot." Um, so do I. It's, it's it's part of our culture across the country, uh, at least everywhere I've been. Um, and I understand, you know, how it how it came into being and what what the police officers mean when they say it. Um, but it, it it's one of those turns of phrases that that has a completely different impact on a civilian. And and so I, I I would like to find a replacement for that term. I don't know. I'm sure there are some out there, and, and I hope that those are mm-hmm. what begin to be adopted here. Yeah, I, I I agree. And just to go back one second, when you talk about perception versus reality, or perception is the reality. I learned that decades ago. I presided over our union, and we were fighting a very major bill up in the legislature, and I was brand new to to dealing with with people and, and, you know, politicians. And I was taken aside by someone uh, who gave me that, that piece of advice. Understand people's perceptions are the realities. And so if you go up, come up against, you know, um, political leaders and they disagree with you, you need to educate them or re-educate them to change their perspective on things and see, and see it from through your light. And I, I, like you, I never forgot the phrase. I didn't, I didn't um, bristle at it, but it was, I, I need to understand this. I need to understand why guys, from the city, see things differently from the people in rural and, and suburb, uh, suburban areas. And long story short, we, we won what we were trying to do and, and, and accomplished, but only by turning the thought process on so many state senators around that they, and, and state representatives as well, that they saw where we were coming from and agreed with it. So, um, but I've, I live by that phrase. I don't think there's a day go by that I don't, I don't think of it, especially when I get angry at somebody else's perspective. And it's my job to, to educate them and whether it changes or not, I don't know, but at least I know I tried. Yeah, I think I bristled at it because I, I have such a strong, maybe overactive sense of justice. I mean, a lot of people who go into law enforcement, that's one of their personality traits. And at the time, I think I believed more in the idea of an objective truth, an objective reality. And, uh, <laughs> that's i mean there are some but you know not, not enough for me to be getting upset like i was and so uh i'm glad you were more mature in, in when you heard it because uh because there's benefit in it i mean initially there's mercenary benefit if you understand where you're 
where your opponent is coming from, it's it's easier to strategize in response to that. Hopefully, though, that leads to something w- w- greater where you don't view the person across from you as an opponent, but as a partner. And you have to understand your partner. I mean, if we treated more of these sorts of conversations like we treat conversations in our marriages mm-hmm. you know, or, or our friendships, hey, we're on the same side. We just disagree. Let's figure this out. Uh, it would be an entirely different situation. Mm-hmm. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Frank, in the time we have left, uh, I want to talk a, a bit about another book uh, that you edited called The Tattered Blue Line. And it, it kind of follows the ride along. I, I thought anyway, I, I, I kind of tied the two of them together in my mind. Could you just talk a little bit about how you came upon that and how you sort of doled out responsibilities for people to write shot stories? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, f- for the ride along, I, I I wanted to have uh, you know these two very distinct people. You know, a really good cop with a you know honest attitude that he came about very honestly, and a really good uh, reformer who was a good person as well. And so I had these two perspectives, and they're both good people. Uh, but those are only two perspectives that were explored in the ride along. And so when the time came for the tattered blue line. Um, I wanted to put together an anthology that had more than two voices, and and I wanted to get as many voices as I could. And so the criteria that I'd laid out was pretty basic. I wanted authors who had a background in law enforcement, um, uh, whether as a civilian or as commissioned. Uh, There was one exception. I I did take a a military member who, who did work with the criminal enforcement elements of the military. So I, I felt like it was a fair cheat to include her. Uh, but mostly I wanted to include her because I'd read some of her other work and, and, and I knew she would do a good job. And so I assembled about a dozen or 13, I think maybe I'd have to go back and count different law enforcement professionals for, for sake of a better term who were extremely diverse. And when I say diverse, I mean that in every sense of the word, both uh you know ethnically racially gender but also their law enforcement experiences you know large city rural areas large departments small departments federal state local i I tried to hit i tried to check as many boxes as, as i could that were different from each other with the selection of these authors all the while keeping a mind towards them being good authors because you wanted good stories and the only real instruction or or direction that I gave them about the stories was I wanted them to explore the humanity of the police officers and the humanity of those that they interacted with. And however they chose to approach that, however they chose to show that that was up to them. Because I found if you put authors in too small of a box, then, then you basically get cookie cutter stories. But if you just give them kind of a compass direction, then you get a wide array of stories. And you, I know you've read this uh, collection, so you saw in there uh, extreme uh, difference in in the in the different approaches. I mean, you had a, 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 a for instance, a, a school resource officer was one of the uh, stories uh, about uh, uh, stopping a, a school shooting. Uh, and then there was uh, the the one that uh, Mark Bergen did in which, you know, the the city, the municipality uh, took a novel approach in, in disarming their police and, and how, you know, kind of how would that 
affect things. So sort of a uh, almost sci-fi in a way there, alternate future history. Um, you know, had a, a Secret Service agent wrote one, a, a small town uh, uh, police officers and, and, and others. Um, and, and the whole purpose, again, was to show the humanity of the job and not just the cops, obviously, but the people they interacted with, the victims, the witnesses and the suspects and the community at large. And so it had the same purpose as you obviously sussed out as the ride along. I just felt like, all right, you know, Colin and I sort of curated two very distinct voices for the ride along and we worked really hard to make them as nuanced and balanced as possible. Now let's get another dozen or so voices. Um, and, and that's, and that's what we did with the ride along. Um, and, uh, I, I wrote the final story in that, in that collection. And, uh, one fine day is a, a little bit of a companion piece to the ride along in terms of, of what it explores and, and what occurs. Um, but we had authors, like I said, from all over the country, even, uh, had a Danish, uh, author had a, an Australian author. So, uh, very diverse voices. And, and then what you hear at the end of it all is that people are people, you know, and we forget that sometimes we start to throw labels at people, hang, hang, hang signs on them and think about them in terms of labels. And, and that's dehumanizing, right? And it makes it easier to uh, disagree, to have negative feelings, to make generalities uh, about a person. And, and hopefully in, in even just the tiniest of way, reading these stories might spark something in, in the reader that makes them look at both the cops and the situation and the other people involved in a more individualistic and human fashion. I, again, I've been in the business for almost 50 years, and I read all of them, and it gave me a different perspective and a different look. Um, and it, again, it's not a question of do you believe it or do you not believe it. It just creates... Uh, uh, thought and makes you think through things that you were just taking for granted. And your, your perspective, is it is it a good one or is it a bad one or is it an incomplete one? And a lot of these, I think I found that it was an incomplete one. And I, geez, I never saw that. I never thought of it that way. Um, and, and that's what it's all about. It's, you know, I've, I've learned that through the years. And as a homicide investigator and interviewing people, really came to realize that the guy across from me that I'm looking at and thinking, what a clown, is looking back at me and thinking, what a clown. And then it's my job to start a conversation, find the, get, develop the rapport, get into this. And, and generally speaking, it comes out great. But if you don't start it, it's not going to not going to change anything. When I think as a homicide investigator, which I, I never was, um, I, you're you're in a uniquely uh, qualified position to have those conversations because, I mean, it's true in any investigation, but it is so critical in a homicide investigation. You have to follow the facts and you have to follow what really is you you have to be real careful not to let investigator bias creep in and guide your investigation so you have to be open-minded yep. you know Very much and so. yeah well i mean i wish well, i wish we could be that way about everything i know i know, I, know. <laughs> I mean that's the problem right where we, we make our decisions about something before we have all the facts and and it i mean it still infuriates me uh i guess mildly being having written the right along and having had conversations like this a lot over the past four or five years has been cathartic because I find there are plenty of people who who actually share this this idea of you know you're right I'm kind of sick and tired of everybody yelling and being angry maybe we should start to talk and so maybe things are shifting that way 
and and that would be great but uh, uh we're still a flawed race of of people <laughs> we humans absolutely jordan you have anything to add i've been quiet because i'm just fascinated hearing the two of you talk and what a appeals to me is not only the humanity of, of both of you, and I know Bill personally now, but the sensitivity to all sides. And I think that's what's not missing because you guys exemplify that, but I think it's what the media and the public fails to see. So bravo to you, Frank, and bravo to you, Bill, for doing what you do. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, that's kind of you to say. Wraps it up from our end today. If there's anything you'd like to add, please do. I not only look forward to seeing you again at next year's conference, but hopefully uh, as we go along, um, an opportunity to be a guest once again. Well, I I would love that because I think the work that you're doing here is absolutely uh, critical. And and I think your presentation uh, that that you're doing and and the production by Jordan is uh, very effective. Uh, the one, the episodes that I've listened to have been excellent. And so I hope people are listening. I hope that they're letting uh, what discussions you have and what points you make, you know, spark some things in their brain. They don't have to agree with you. They just, you know, all, all I ever ask is just consider what I'm saying. And if people consider what you're saying and then they take the time to actually give it some thought as opposed to just reacting, uh, uh, you know, knee jerk reaction, which is a danger we all have, right? Um, if they do that, you know, I think uh, we, we might get somewhere. So uh, I applaud you for the work you're doing. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com. <laughs>